Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 251. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Matt DiBiase. Hey, Kip. Hello, sir, and I want to thank you for joining me to discuss an article published on Aon.com, that's A-E-O-N, and this was published on March 21st, 2019, written by Paula Boddington and edited by Nigel Warburton. And the article, in essence, gets into how artificial intelligence is going to impact our lives and ways in which Boddington thinks it might be overapplied and some of the dangers it will pose to our society. I think it's worth clarifying at the outset that in contrast to the Terminator-style vision many people have of a future hyper-influenced by technology, Boddington's primary argument is not that an active threat will be posed to our physical safety as human beings or a society, but rather that artificial intelligence will run the risk of over-reliance to the point that our skills as individuals, as people, will atrophy. We'll no longer be able to think as critically for ourselves, if you will, if at all. But Matt, I'd like to begin our discussion with the opening paragraphs of the article in which Boddington gives a hypothetical. Picture a grandmother baking biscuits with her grandson, who's five years old. And he's not very adept. He's making rather lumpy, oblong, or generally misshapen biscuits, according to this hypothetical. And the grandmother, eventually growing impatient, turns to an artificial intelligence that makes perfect biscuits. And it's at this point that she thinks how much she actually appreciated his imperfect creations from before. Shortly after, the two parents arrive home, and the boy proudly exclaims that he made these biscuits. One parent says, oh, that's lovely, and really enjoys the biscuit. The other parent thinks privately, no, you didn't. That's not at all what happened. And I think that's a really beautiful distinction, that AI may reduce our agency to an extent, But also, we might misattribute agency where it doesn't actually belong. If I use a GPS and a map application to ultimately locate myself at your house, Matt, am I really finding my way there? Did I, in fact, navigate to your house? I would argue no. But I think, of the many philosophical seeds in this article, that one provides a good place to start. Yeah, I think for me, there's always going to be a fear in technology's involvement that you lose a sense of skill or autonomy over your own actions. But along with that, you do optimize certain tasks that many of us don't look forward to. And there's always going to be a spectrum there that is different for every person involved. How in control you want to be or skilled you want to be at a certain task versus how connected you want it to be with a person. For example, me typing in an address on Google Maps to get to Kip's house was motivated mainly by wanting to see Kip and engage with Kip rather than needing to feel a sense of pride in navigating to Kip's house. I do appreciate that in the examples you and I have both given, you're going to my house when I'm not there because I'm currently en route to your house and we're both using GPS. (laughs) Yeah, those all highlight our different relationships to technology and our different priorities and preferences within that. And I think related to this idea of autonomy and prioritization of either humanity or utility, the equation that's kind of being posed with many of these examples in the article is science and technology multiplied by our values produces a lifestyle. It can create sort of a passion, I guess, and technology can further enable that passion, but it can also detract from your skills in order to pursue that passion. 
But to me, I think there's always going to be a balance of humans incorporating a certain amount of technology in order to achieve what makes them happy. And there's such a spectrum there that, yes, every time you encounter new technologies, for example, nuclear weapons, there's going to be a tendency to try and use them as a way to demonstrate our newfound power. But look at the ramifications of what happened there and how we've totally cut off the tragic use of such a tool. In that realm, I believe things like social media and involving artificial intelligence in these platforms might have already provoked a certain level of tragedy in our society today. And acknowledging that and taking better steps forward with how we empower every individual to use AI in the way they want and not feel controlled by it or overtaken by it is a really important thing to be conscious of. I'm especially appreciative of your references to tragedy and, in fact, to the nuclear bomb, a sentence that I don't think I want repeated out of context, because there's a connection there that I think is really valuable. And also, to get a bit meta, what I'm fearful of, or perhaps doubtful of, in artificial intelligence is that I see it as making logical connections, connections it's been taught to make. I think tragedy and nuclear bombs could easily be linked. But I don't think AI, at least currently, and in my limited understanding, is great at making connections that wouldn't otherwise seem obvious, or even ones that are completely outlandish for a human being with rational thought. That's a realm where I find great delight and joy, often in improv, on stage. The absurd has to come from a degree of reason and logic, but a whole ocean of the ridiculous. And I think artificial intelligence prefers different ingredients, if you will. But to return to tragedy and the nuclear bomb, I'm reminded of the very ominous quotation that one death is a tragedy, but many are a statistic. And the reason I reference that is because with military technology, where we know that death is an outcome and perhaps even an outcome pursued, I worry that certain artificial intelligences would make very cold calculations about when it is or is not applicable to, let's say, use nuclear weapons. And I don't know that we would ever grant artificial intelligence the authority to use nuclear weapons, but in a hypothetical case where we did, would their rule set be that if N was a greater number than those killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then no, the atomic bomb should not be used? But if N is less than 226,000 people, the high estimate for how many were killed between the two bombings, then yes, it is appropriate to use a nuclear bomb again because that was the upper threshold established when nuclear bombs were first used. I think you could, in a very emotionless way, make that argument. And to me, that's terrifying. I hope we live in a world where nuclear bombs are never again used, but I also think AI could make use of our history in a very concerning way. I think there are similarly emotionless approaches to capitalistic endeavors of maximizing profit and minimizing cost at the cost of people's humanity and safety and senses of happiness or autonomy. I don't know that I'm worried we'll live in such a dystopia, but I also think we have to wonder who is employing the artificial intelligence. And I will leave it there as other ideas are springing to my mind that deviate into other subtopics. I think one thing I was hinting at and you were really getting to there at the end was the context in which you use technology being so important. You know, the first equation I was talking about with science and technology sort of being added together and then multiplied by values was really starting to discuss how can you calculate morality or how do you gauge morality and then calculate 
its empowerment through technology. In my own endeavors as a musician that likes to incorporate a lot of technology, I often wonder if I'm losing a certain sense of skill on my instrument or not prioritizing certain values as being a performer. I also am paranoid that these machines are starting to analyze lots of music and be able to generate it themselves, which is putting a lot of musicians out of business. But to return to this idea of context, it's very reassuring to know that a machine doesn't have the exact life that I've lived and doesn't have this sense of motivation for human connection in making these calculations to make music. And that kind of brings me to the point of computers and technology, I feel like, will always be one step behind human intentions and contexts. And in that sense, I'm confident we will always be able to learn and adjust technology to fit within those humane parameters. There's obviously extreme danger in how it's manipulating a lot of our decisions right now, but I do believe that that is controllable and distributable in different amounts for different levels of involvement that people want to have with artificial intelligence. What I especially appreciate about what you're saying, at the risk of bringing everything back to improv, is that I think with market shifts, if you will, and I picture musicians losing potential business or losing market share to artificial intelligence, I think the market value of being able to improvise, and you have a background as a jazz musician, I think the value of that improvisation increases because there is a certain randomness. A word I've often heard used against me in anecdotal contexts as a synonym for the unreasonable or that which I can't understand, something that is so ridiculous it doesn't even warrant my time. But I think a lot of us can relate to the experience of living in a heavily grid-based, organized, categorized, and even compartmentalized society where things are so polished and pristine that it begins to feel less organic. Our world is naturally messy. We can appreciate a forest that isn't geometrically symmetrical at all, but it's life. And life has found a way to inhabit that space or in other natural environments. And I think artificial intelligence at times reflects our paranoia surrounding disorder, that that which is not organized is somehow wrong or problematic. And I think increasingly the era of artificial intelligence might show us the beauty of that which we cannot predict or properly understand. It might even give us a healthy degree of the absence of agency things over which we can't have control, and perhaps making peace with that. Another example we haven't yet touched on in this article has nothing to do with the arts, but instead Boddington brings up car accidents, and how human beings actually learn quite slowly from car accidents. We don't necessarily keep track of specific wheel movements or other things that went wrong. She simply articulates that it takes us a while to properly appreciate what went wrong. I would even add that I think in human emotion and pride, we might not blame ourselves for accidents that are entirely our fault. Autonomous vehicles, on the other hand, can very quickly learn, can share that information almost instantaneously, and can function in a hive mind capacity where ego for us is the barrier to that kind of thought. We don't want someone else's thoughts to be the motivator for our action, depending on how highly we value independence. But an autonomous car doesn't have that issue, and that's an arena in which I think we benefit from turning to AI. And I say this full well knowing how much I have enjoyed driving stick shift. And I suspect there will come a day, a decade in which I'm either banned from doing so or in which it's socially frowned upon, or at least less available to me as a mode of transportation. And Matt, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts 
on the example of the autonomous car. Man, I really love the thought of not needing to drive a car anymore. It is so appealing, and these tragic time wasters of major traffic jams not being a concern would be amazing. I certainly think that the autonomous vehicle argument and perspective on AI really accentuates its strengths in that it will help human lives and it will take advantage of this hive mind quality of AI that Boddington references in her article. At its core, transportation and moving our bodies to different places is kind of a task that's inconvenient and we don't look forward to as much. I'm about to get on a flight, one of the most annoying things for sure points out to me moments where we should involve technology more in order to increase the amount of time we spend together humanely. And I think it really gets at these core innate desires for humans to feel a sense of belonging, to feel a sense of connection within a larger community. That's what transportation enables. It enables everyone to go home for Thanksgiving and to be with their families. And I think we should always try and optimize that process to make it as efficient as possible. And in doing so, we enable human interactions to occur even more transparently with a friend in the car as you ride somewhere. So largely, it revolves around encouraging humanity and making more convenient tasks we don't look forward to. I'm smiling to myself thinking of the examples that you've presented because I agree. There are a lot of tasks that we don't look forward to But I think it's in human nature, or at least I see it in myself, and don't think I'm alone in this, to make art out of things that are hard sciences or even tasks we don't look forward to. I am not wild about washing dishes, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and music while I do it, and I've come to have a positive association with the activity as a result. It is, to an extent, an art, or at least a non-mundane task, and somewhat fulfilling in a way. You reference airports or driving in a car. In my previous experience as a Lyft driver, even taking long road trips, or in my hyper-poetic approach to airports, I feel really connected to other people. And some of my favorite experiences regarding transportation, period, have been on trains or in airplanes where I look around and marvel and wonder, A, at the advanced technology, but B, at the shared destinations that random and very different people are sharing in those circumstances. I look at a family to my left in the airplane of two fathers and their child, and I wonder, what's their relationship like? And how long have they been a family? Where are they headed to, and how do they feel about it? And I may even strike up a conversation with them. And I don't think this is exclusive to me, and I suspect that as our society becomes more orderly, I think human beings will continue to impose healthy disorder to remind ourselves of the value of random thoughts, maybe even random conversations. I would offer the thought that historically, when many of us ask our parents or grandparents how they met, a lot of those circumstances occur because of some pretty interesting happenstances that algorithms and artificial intelligence might not allow for, and I would even argue couldn't properly calculate the sheer coincidence emotionally, geographically, and even professionally of some meetings, I think require quantities and variables that would be really hard for a machine or even a network of machines to really calculate. I also had the following thought, Matt, that I'd love to share while I was taking notes for this episode that my handwriting may only be recognizable to me and my eyes because I know what letters I was trying to encode. I recently tried reading a friend's notes that they were sharing with me and I couldn't decipher half of their vowels 
And so the thought occurs to me that in our organic construction of written language, we have to an extent developed a kind of non-electronic encryption. If you can't read my notes, but I can, I don't need a password. I just need my own eyes and my own experience of writing. And I have no problem with standardized language. We couldn't have read this article online if it didn't exist. But there are certain things that I think artificial intelligence, more so standardization brought about by AI, can't really capture and might even sand off or polish away in a way that would somewhat sadden me. I could come up with other examples of randomization that I really adore and cherish. I would even offer, as a final comment, and coming back to parenthood and genetics, that if AI were to determine who we paired up with based on genetic superiority or ideal outcomes, we'd be very clearly veering into the category of eugenics, when I think there's something beautiful about the fact that couples who go on to have kids, I think in most cases, my fingers crossed, don't do so because of the genetic superiority of their offspring, but rather other intangible qualities of attraction and trust, compatibility, etc. Yeah, I think one continuous idea through a lot of those thoughts you just had is this notion of belief or faith and how that is such an unquantifiable thing and is so subjective in all of our minds. And that, to me, is the beauty of humanity to a certain extent. And it can even be illogical at times. But those kind of thought processes motivate and drive much of our decision-making and human behavior. So I feel that this level of human entropy and disorder that is natural to us should not be lost in this whole process of developing efficient and moral technology and what that means. Well, personally, I would make the argument, and here I would cite technology journalist and fellow podcasting friend Wade Rausch, and say that technology is not only an extension of, but a reflection of human desires and intentions. Matt, earlier you referenced how technology allows for a lifestyle that we had base or root desires for, and we're simply finding that lifestyle through technology. Perhaps the origins of our concerns about moral technology should really be rooted in our moral reflections of ourselves. I don't believe we currently live in a particularly introspective society, and I don't know if that can be brought about, because I do think evils can proliferate if the technology allows for it. One particular scourge comes to mind in the era of the smartphone, and that being revenge porn. And for those who are not familiar, these are sexually explicit images or videos posted without the subject's consent. And there's all kinds of layers of immorality there. But what I find particularly problematic is that they could be taken consensually during a relationship. But if they weren't deleted after the relationship is over, you never had a right to distribute them to unknown third parties. But you especially don't now that you're out of contact with this person. And yet the smartphone has allowed this and allowed it quite widely. I worry that technology will move faster than a legal system might. And here's where I would reference one of my favorite quotations in the article that, quote, change blindness and fast adaptation to technology can mean we're not fully aware of such cultural and value shifts. And that to me is especially concerning. I think about the natural curiosity and neuroplasticity of the young mind combined with all of the youthful people in the world who are increasingly exposed to cheaper and cheaper and more powerful technology, 
And beyond positive creative expressions like the arts, it feels like a recipe for disaster. I'm not surprised given human tendencies that revenge porn and other concerning elements of technology have emerged, but I think technology is only as moral or immoral as its users are. I also think that AI, at least as it's described in this article, seems to excel with improvements or building on what came before and making it more efficient or clean. But, as we've discussed, not so much on generating something truly new. And so here's where AI, I don't think, could help legislate itself because there's a cycle of complexity there. As AI allows us to do more and more, can it properly help us mitigate the moral impacts of what it allows us to do? I agree with many of the things you just said especially the idea that I don't think we should give AI autonomy over its own regulation. I think legislation, which is another thing you touched upon, often arises from bad circumstances that we try and avoid in the future, and that humans always need to be the people determining that. But it does pose a serious issue when you have tech companies scaling and having more power as third parties than our government does in many regards. So how you combat that is a very difficult challenge, and I'm not sure I have the answer to it. In fact, I think it's still being discovered what the answer is to that. But I do get very conflicted when I see such negative ramifications and yet such positive influences on things like me going and making music on my computer. There's so many avenues and there's so many possibilities. But again, I kind of go back to this central point that I think it should all channel towards creating better relationships and sharing great ideas. And while I do think that technology challenges me to think differently about how I produce music and manage my artistry, I think in larger networks of social relationships, AI has a tendency to be more destructive than individual creative processes. I think one of the most difficult issues in our generation is how to monitor technology's influence on our own humanity and whether that's a good or bad thing. My starting point is always such that you should design technology around human goals. But if those goals are changing as a result of technology, how do you monitor them? That relationship has always been a very difficult one to parse out for me. But I usually live within the realm of empowering myself to create collaborate and communicate with a lot of other people as an artist. I think your use of the word collaborate brings us very neatly to the final nexus of this conversation, which is what I think could be the best possible future for the application of artificial intelligence. Early in the article, and to those of you listening, we will of course include a link to this article, but about a third of the way down, Boddington refers to medicine, and at one point says, think about medicine as an art. And she does so because her previous descriptions of artificial intelligence in medicine remark that it's excellent at discerning between two images that might look identical to the human eye and perhaps diagnosing or catching something that human beings might not. But because of the narrow focus of AI in the present, Boddington worries that it won't have good bedside manner and may preclude potential options. If someone came to you with throat pain and that's all the data you had, An AI might say, I can make a decision based on the statistical likelihood of what this is, but a doctor might know which questions to ask, and, because of their empathetic abilities as a human being, 
might know how to phrase those questions to elicit an answer from a potentially vulnerable and scared patient that might be put off by an AI asking the same exact question. And this is where I think partnership would make a lot of sense because medicine, which is absolutely scientific, is applied by semi-scientific beings in a non-scientific way. If you speak to a patient about a fracture and their humerus, only a portion of patients are going to know that that refers to the upper bone in their arm. Others wouldn't know that. And so you have to find a way to humanize scientific language that, sure, an AI could be taught to do. But I also suspect that some of our greatest scientists, and that includes doctors, are where they are because they grew comfortable with mistakes, with experimentation. And AI has a mathematical experience of experimentation. But again, in my understanding, once correct and efficient routes have been established, AI disregards all of the previous routes that didn't work. Imagine a national park where people take all kinds of routes, but 90% of people take a certain route. What if AI started restricting other routes, saying, we calculate that you're most likely to enjoy this route, from which we've aggregated the highest quantity of Instagram posts and other remarks. We know that this route is popular. Don't even bother with the other routes. We've cordoned them off for the remainder of the season. I think there are certain people, especially in the realm of exploring nature, who would say, well, I'm not here to do what other people do. I want to wander and see what this national park has to offer. And to me, that metaphor is apt for the value of exploration that I worry AI might unintentionally cut off from us. I think empowering our curiosity is one of the best uses of technology and accessing so much different information so quickly is a beautiful thing, but at the same time can be crippling when you feel like you don't know anything in your own brain. Spellcheck is a classic example of this that I feel like I'm becoming increasingly terrible at spelling words, but my goal is to communicate with these people as fast as possible, and it's certainly enabling that. I think that everyone has different levels of how much spontaneity and wandering they want to do in their lives. But what's very difficult to calibrate is what is healthy. What is healthy is different for every person, but there are certain fundamental things and guidelines that we should live by. Going back to medicine, you have things like blood pressure. It's a statistic that cannot be ignored. And I do think regardless of people's levels of engagement with technology and its frequency that it inhabits their lives there does need to be a more strict monitoring of how frequently they use it and in what way they use it, so at least they're conscious of that, and they can determine their own level of health in their relationship with technology. And of course, Matt, as I think you've just described, and I hope we've offered throughout this episode, the value of self-reflection and critical thought. What are some ideas and thoughts you'd like the audience to consider and mull over after listening to our conversation? I kind of have a motto that breaks down life into different categories, stemming from this idea of basic human needs, which is this feeling of self-worth in your ability to create and a need to inspire and motivate yourself with like-minded people in collaborating and finally communicating all of those ideas transparently, honestly, and effectively to a larger community and contributing to a larger community. 
And I think those three C's that I've been really exploring and thinking about a lot recently all have been influenced by technology's involvement in my life. Think about how you create and derive your sense of worth, how you form these relationships and these rapports with people around you, and how you try and serve a larger purpose that's bigger than yourself, and how technology can serve a healthy role in all three of those elements, rather than a detrimental one. And the two ideas I'd like to leave the audience with, firstly, making a loop back to the beginning of the article and that hypothetical biscuit story, thinking about the value we place on imperfections, the birthmarks or crooked smiles that make us asymmetrical, but not necessarily lacking in beauty. I would even argue to an extent increasing our beauty because of the individuality that we can associate with deviations. And if folks will be patient with the following sentence, I'd also love people to think about thinking. At one point, Baddington says that AI might lead to, quote, a uniformity of thinking. And I would argue that it might lead to a lack of thought in certain cases where we simply trust in the algorithms and technologies presented to us. And I really think keeping the matter between our ears healthy and functioning is essential not only to our own success and happiness, but to our societies. And I'd rather live in a thinking society than an unthinking one. And I say that with full and personal awareness of the pain caused by overthinking and excessive analysis. But there is, of course, a healthy middle ground between. And Matt, for helping me to find it in conversation today, I want to thank you for your time and eloquence. It's always a pleasure. Kip, I always love coming on this show and talking about the most important questions that uh, are looping around our minds all day. Well, I look forward to having you back. But of course, we always want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we'd love to hear what those of you listening think or question about this topic. So if you have any comments, opinions, or thoughts of any kind, feel free to reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes and pre-show recordings. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.